0: Your entire mic? Uh, I don't know. It just moved. Spooky. <laughs> um, okay. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Opera Offstage. I'm Jesse, and I'm Michelle. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to Spooky Season. Uh, the reason we're laughing is because we tried to sync up our audio, and then mysteriously my like pop filter just flopped over. So I'm being haunted by a ghost. It's no big deal. <laughs> spooky season is truly upon us um so i can't believe that this is our second annual halloween episode can you believe that i really can't and just so everyone knows we started planning this halloween episode as soon as we finished the first one yeah literally it's it's so true honestly the halloween episode is for some reason my favorite um every single year they're so good i i love spooky season so If you haven't listened to last year's episode, you definitely should. Where Michelle comes to terms with the fact that she doesn't have a spooky voice. Okay, true. (laughs) That was a really tough pill for me to swallow, you guys. I thought that I sounded so spooky when we were recording, and then I listened back to the episode, and I freaking sound like some little squeaky character on Mickey Mouse or something. Oh. (laughs) It's fine. I'm not meant to be spooky. Maybe that's a good thing. anyways guys thanks so much for bearing with us lately it's been crazy over here at opera offstage i moved jesse moved cross-country and we were like that's fine we can schedule for moving and then we were like wait the aftermath of moving is even more hectic sometimes than like actually moving because then you have to furnish your apartment like (laughs) do all this stuff and find a job it's been crazy (laughs) it's been find a job wild yeah it's Thanks for hanging with us. We took a little bit of a hiatus in uh, the month of September, and we are back. Jesse and I are now living in the same state, like twenty minutes away, which is crazy. That happened hasn't happened since we were in undergrad together. So there's lots of fun stuff coming your way. So thanks for sticking with us. But today we've got some spooky stories to share. Yeah, and before we dive into Spookville, we have a couple of announcements. First of all, our blog writer Preston Hereford. Wrote a really fun <laughs> blog post called "Opera Houses That Are Definitely Haunted." So, go check that out on our blog at opera-offstage.com/blog. And then I was I was perusing our blog and then remembered that Jesse last year wrote the recipe for a delicious zalome themed cocktail last year. Oh yeah, what what was like the equivalent of that drink? Like, what would it? So be close that to? was uh, that was actually a kind of a vintage drink that I. Now I can't remember that you're asking me. Jesse made yeah. it, and then it left her brain. <laughs> yeah, truly, really, no thoughts. Oh, I think it was maybe a little bit twist on maybe like a bee's knees. Ooh. But it's a shaken gin cocktail, so it gets cloudy, and then we used pomegranate syrup to make it look a little bloody. It looked very spicy. So check it out. That's also on the blog. But ooh, let's get into some, <laughs> some spooky <Ooh>. stories. <laughs> Just so you guys know, we're going to do some stories here, several of which contain violence um, because they are covering murders and other kind of spooky things. Um, and there will also be some jokes interspersed in there. And if any of that bothers you, feel free to just skip this episode. In the bio for the episode, I will list each story and specific triggers with timestamps, just in case you want to listen to some but not others, because there is also a story in here that involves a uh, attempted sexual assault. So... A-okay. We just want to give you guys a full heads up. And if this is not for you, then we will see you next week. All right, folks. Buckle up. So uh, here's the thing. Here's my question that we're going to start off with. First of all, why have so many people died at the Met? (laughs) How did we not know, though? That's what gets me. Like, how has the Met done such a good job of hiding how many deaths have happened there? Yeah, like the Phantom of the Opera is based off of like Paris Opera. But like, come on. We're not talking about how many freaking people have died at the Met. And you guys, I'm not talking about, you know, like, you know, God forbid, the tragedy of an older patron having a heart attack or stroke. I'm talking about like wild deaths. So here's one that really shook me to my core because, you know, we've all heard of Leonard. Leonard? (laughs) Goodbye. Wow. (laughs) Have we? Have we heard of him? (laughs) Oh, my God. We've all heard of Leonard Warren dying you know, mid or after his aria. But here's one that you probably haven't heard of. So let's go back to 1988. Imagine you're going on a dinner date. You're all excited to dress up, put on some fancy clothes, maybe grab a little fancy dinner and then head to the Metropolitan Opera's performance of Macbeth. Already spooky. Already bad luck. Very much. You know, things are going great. You get through act one and suddenly you see a flash of blue and a loud crash here's the very upsetting death of banchowski freak what's his last name he's got the whack name (laughs) sorry he's like hella russian where'd he go hella russian over here sheesh wait try that again (laughs) keeping all of this in here's the very upsetting death of bancho Banchevsky. (laughs) <laughs> which is hell of a name that name is amazing an 82 year old bulgarian singing coach who lived near the opera house and was a frequent patron of the opera during the intermission of macbeth bunchowski fell 80 feet from the family circle balcony the fifth and highest balcony in the opera house all the way down on his way down he struck the lower balcony rail landed on unoccupied seats near the left center aisle 10 rows from the back of the orchestra and fell into the aisle with a broken seat atop him. Moments before witnesses claimed to see him bending dangerously over the railing, and while it was unclear as to whether his death was a complete accident or a suicide, luckily there was no evidence of foul play. So, Bunchowski luckily wasn't murdered. But can you imagine you're sitting at the opera and like a body falls 80 feet down into the back of the orchestra? Thank God he didn't fall on somebody. Well, he did brush somebody, but the woman, luckily, thank God, was not injured. That Um, poor woman, though. Oh, my God. So, as you would expect, once people understood what was happening, the opera house turned into complete chaos. Luckily, because, you know, the majority of the audience had left to the lobby and other waiting areas because, you know, it was intermission and the orchestra was less than half full, still utter pandemonium police arrive yeah. crazy they usher everybody out obviously Bunchowski was declared dead upon impact several people tried to test his pulse i just don't think that you survive from 80 feet but that is the unfortunate story of Bunchowski. dang what really gets me is it's like what are the odds that it freaking happens during macbeth like how spooky does it need to get well, t- that and like it's weird to me that they don't really know if like it was just like an accident. I was like, did he have a stroke? Like, what happened? Nobody knows. I don't know. Maybe he just fell. I I can't imagine a worse experience at the opera than like watching someone fall. Oh, neither can I. From the f- like no. the fifth highest and- balcony. Excuse me. Oh my gosh! I always forget how <laughs> how tall that building is. But I I have my own met murder. But I'm going to hold off on it for just a little bit, because there's a different story I want to tell you first. Oh, no. And a story that, like, if you're into the true crime and kind of cult world, you've probably heard a little bit about this. uh, But maybe not about its connection to music. So, in October of 1997, in California, the bodies of 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult were found inside a 9,000 square foot mansion they had called the monastery, dressed in black shirts and black sweatpants and, most famously, a pairs of black and white Nike shoes and armbands that read Heaven's Gate Away Team. All of the bodies were found very carefully placed in this mansion. That's a no. Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely not. And also just a-, a nightmare for the Nike marketing team. <laughs> so, the cult members were found to have taken phenobarbital. Uh, and chased it with vodka and following that they had secured plastic bags around their heads in order to asphyxiate themselves the plastic bags were removed uh but i'll get to how that happened in a second so the actual suicides were committed over the course of three days which is why they didn't have the plastic bags still on them when they were found only two people had them because when each group would kill themselves they would then be posed and taken care of by the other members so they were all posed very neatly in their beds and their faces and torsos were covered by a square purple cloth. The thing about Heaven's Gate cult, if you don't know about them, uh, is that they believe that their souls were basically kind of trapped in the human form and they believe that their souls would be placed into new bodies by extraterrestrials who were traveling by spaceship either on or with the comet Hale-Bopp. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No thank you. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know... Michelle absolutely hates aliens. <laughs> so she's Michelle would so for so many reasons run away from this cult. This is my worst nightmare. Goodbye. <laughs> could could not be worse for Michelle. No. Thank you for sharing the intro. Please do not continue. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That's that's all we'll be hearing about this Let's, cult it's for today. Spooky Michelle enough. has had enough. And that's just the basic breakdown of what Heaven's Gate is most famous for. The cult actually gets its start back in the 1970s, and there is so much information about Heaven's Gate out there. I could spend this entire episode breaking down how the cult became came to be and why they did what they did. But you've got the basics of it, so I'm going to trust if you want to know more, you'll go and find that information. There's a really great documentary that I saw on it, which is where I learned that Heaven's Gate has a really strange little connection to the music world. So, of the 39 members of Heaven's Gate who committed suicide, one was Marshall Her Applewhite Jr. Okay. He was, technically speaking, the second member of the cult, um, who would later become the leader. Along with Bonnie Nettles, he would start the mystic cult that would eventually lead 38 other people to their death. Marshall Applewhite was the child of a Presbyterian minister. They always are. Which I feel like is a start yeah. of a, huh? They always are. (laughs) They always are. There's always like some deeply religious background. Yeah. Um, He received a degree in philosophy from Austin College and then began studying in a seminary, hoping to become a minister. Um, He ended leaving the seminary to study music and became the music director of a Presbyterian church in North Carolina. He was a baritone and he had a deep love for the music of Handel and spirituals. He was later drafted into the Army, and after spending two years there, he enrolled in University of Colorado, where he earned a master's degree in music, and really focused in on musical theater. Okay. So, like, he was, he was very much into music, especially his young life, and I think maybe spiritually he felt more connected through music. That's wild. It really is. He sounds just like a regular music guy to me, so far. He sounds like all of us. You yeah. start in one career, you hop to another, you get a degree in music. Yep. Uh it it only gets more 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 similar as we go. Uh he moved to New York City in a failed attempt to become a professional singer. And then he moved to Alabama to teach music at University of Alabama. Okay. Where he would also work as the choir master for a couple groups. He eventually lost his position there after 3 years supposedly for pursuing a sexual relationship with a male student. Okay. Shortly after, his wife divorced him. Oh. So the combo of, like, the questioning of his sexuality as someone who was raised in, like, a deeply religious household and his divorce with his wife are considered a couple things that might have triggered some of the psychosis and stuff that people later diagnosed him with. Sure. So then he moves to Houston, Texas to serve as the chair of a music department at university of st thomas his students used to describe him as like a very engaging speaker A very stylish dresser Locally speaking He was super popular He worked as the choral director Of an Episcopal church And He performed with The Houston Grand Opera (gasps) What? And when I saw that I was like Okay So he was probably Like a chorus member Or something No he sang 15 roles With Houston Grand Opera And I cannot For the life of me Find a list of the roles Which is driving me crazy So if anybody knows Where I can find The list of roles That he played there Send it to me That's wild What? Everyone lists Everyone lists that he did 15 rolls, but I cannot find. There is one that he supposedly did and I will tell you about it in a minute, but hold up. I shook. And you can see you can see his love of music and a lot of stuff that comes out of the cult. So his nickname in the cult was Doe. Okay. And Nettles, Nettles who is actually considered the originator of the cult. Her name was T. Oh. <laughs> Her okay. nickname was T. So it was out of obviously a mutual love of music and musical theater. So they, they really bonded over the sound of music. Okay. And you can go on YouTube and they rewrote the lyrics to Do Re Mi and recorded it to fit in with the cult lore. And it's called When You Know T and Do. That, like, is super creepy. <laughs> it's also kind of upsetting because the whole point of Do Re Mi, that song, is that the syllables line up with the notes. Right. But if you change like the first three notes are do re mi to when you know ti and do, oh, then the syllables are no longer on the right ones. So Ooh. it's also very confusing. So wait, is this YouTube video still up? Yeah, you can you can go listen to the cult sing it. Ew. Well, we got to share that to our stories. I'm going to watch it after. That's so spooky. I will put it I'll put it uh in the Discord for anyone who wants okay. to listen. It's it's a little disturbing, but it's not like it, not so creepy. Sure. it's just mostly awkward yeah it's like listening listening to a like to a un- uncomfortable church choir <laughs> so there's a really interesting story about or there's a really interesting like recollection specifically by one of his students because the other thing that kind of got me about this was this guy obviously had contact with a ton of musicians yeah, if he was singing roles at HGO. But he was also the chair of a department. He directed a bunch of choirs. I'm surprised there aren't more people who have written about their recollection of him when they knew him. But there is one person, who's called Neely Bruce, who was a former student of Applewhite's at Alabama. So I'm just going to read directly what he says. Uh, first thing he said was, It's very disorienting when you call him Marshall. Nobody called him Marshall, and everyone just called him Herf. So when Herf Applewhite came to the University of Alabama... He didn't look at all like a professor. He was very casual, very laid back. There was no hint that all this catastrophe was looming in his future. He had a fantastic voice, and he had a lot of charisma. He was such a natural performer, and he would have the audience in the palm of his hand. But it was widely rumored that he was having an affair with one of the male graduate students, and his father was a very, very hard-nosed Presbyterian minister who did not like the fact that he had a gay son. So I divorced him, and I remember her very well. Very nice family. Then that seems to put him in a bit of a tailspin and so on. He left Alabama for Houston, and I got a call telling me that this notorious couple in the news was actually Herf Applewhite and his former nurse, who would have been Nettles. Oh. This is the story that I heard. He was going to attempt a career on the opera stage in Houston Grand Opera. He was going to do his biggest role yet there, which was the role of Olin Blitch. Perfect casting. The traveling preacher who seduces Susanna in the opera Susanna. Uh, he was in rehearsal, and he had some sort of psychotic episode, and he was actually hospitalized, which is where he was said to have met Bonnie Lou Nettles, who then brings him into her, like, spiritualism, which kind of leads to the beginning of the cult. Because it was said that she was actually the the originator. So he found her, but he was such a, a charismatic person that he became kind of the face of the organization. Also, Bonnie Lou Nettles passes away from cancer in 1985, Which is uh, 12 years before the suicide pact happens. Ah. He didn't really- they really didn't believe they were going to die, though. Like, it wasn't- it wasn't a case of, like, a true suicide pact, because they really did believe that their souls would, like, ascend. To the aliens? I think not. Right? But it- I don't know. There's just something fascinating to me about the way, probably, being a charismatic performer- probably played into a lot of him being the face of this cult. Oh, absolutely. In cults you always have to have the charismatic person who leads everybody else to 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 crowd around them. Sounds like Theater kids are actually the devil. <laughs> theater kids it's the seminary to musical slash classical <laughs> the seminary theater, to theater kid to, to murderer pipeline. To, no to HGO to murderer pipeline. That's it. <laughs> that classic path that that path we all know too well <laughs> okay please continue i mean there's not much else to say like this is uh, mostly i wanted to just talk about the lead-in from being this because that from there he meets bonnie lou nettles they gain together they are um very nomadic they move cross-country they start gaining traction she gets cancer gets an eye removed she passes away he has a crisis of faith uh he eventually castrates himself eesh yeah well part of a big part of the spiritualism in the cult was this removal from sexuality which makes sense as a man who was bisexual or gay and really struggling with it because of his religious upbringing so part of it was probably to control that or to distance himself from something he didn't like about himself yeah so he changes the idea because they thought at first that they were all going to physically ascend but after she died like that counteracts their belief because she did not physically ascend so that's when they started believing it was just your soul and that you actually had to leave your physical body. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when he fully becomes the leader of the cult. He did symbolically marry most of the cult as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are actually still, I think, like two surviving members of the cult as well. That's wild. They also kicked people out of the cult at one point, which I kind of thought was interesting. But anyway, my main point was like, I thought it was fascinating that because I had heard about Heaven's Gate and uh, the Nike thing. That was the connection I was was always aware of. Um, but I knew nothing about the fact that he was an opera singer, that he performed Houston Grand Opera, or that he was so into music, or how much of the whole cult was based around music. Music's dangerous. It's a very big connector. Wild. Yeah. So watch out for that pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> look look out for Houston Grand Opera. Another another group that's done impeccable work hiding that fact. Yes. What a great PR team. But if someone out there works for Houston Grand Opera, I beg of you, please send me the roles he played. Yeah somebody do some i just think thing. this is fascinating because there have to be at least a hundred singers alive today who have probably worked or met him oh yeah am way more than that there's like a hundred people in every production <laughs> like that's wild now when you say roles are you talking about like we talking i'm thinking re- small roles like okay. what you might be doing as like a but it does say 15 roles dang Once again, it's impossible because nobody actually lists what it was. Because they don't think people care. (laughs) But I care. And finding the Olin Blitch thing, even though that is more or less a rumor, Mm -hmm. is fascinating to me. Yeah, the irony of that. Well, the fact that, like, the rehearsal for that might have thrown him into a psychotic episode. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely wild. Well, honestly, the spookiest part about that was definitely the aliens, so... (laughs) (laughs) Michelle... Well, the aliens, and of course, like we said, the uh, seminary, what was it, seminary to musical theater, to, to HGO, HGO, to cult leader, to cult pipeline. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well then, let's continue on to our next story. What would you do for 5 million euros? Would you be willing to go to, ex- to the extreme lengths to steal it? Maybe even murder for it? I'm going to tell you a story about how Walter Hill's... Gain the name, the Soprano Slayer. Which, first of all, before I proceed, is kind of baller. <laughs> it is a solid name. Like I kind of want to change my Instagram handle to that. I wonder if it's taken. I will report back. <laughs> Watch me creating a finsta. Okay, so sorry to ruin the mood. <laughs> <laughs> all spookiness has left. The- has left the chat. <laughs> yeah, it's not really sp- the word finsta alone. <laughs> I don't know. Vince is pretty. It's pretty spooky. Um. <laughs> anyways, Waltraud Hills was a somewhat famous soprano who did a regional opera circuit in Germany. Apparently, if you were in the area of Germany where she did this regional opera circuit, you would have considered her very famous. But I have my doubts. She was married to a wealthy husband, and it was commonly known that Walter was a lover of luxury items. She had her husband buy collections of jewels, collectibles, and expensive furs, and her love of money was not out of the realm of local gossip. Her husband, Herman, a 71-year-old fish farmer, which if you ask me, an opera singer and a fish farmer is kind of an awkward and odd couple, but I guess that's the way the cookie crumbles uh all that is to say sounds pretty chill to me (laughs) yeah i was also like catch our next valentine's day poll which is the best person to date as a as a musician a fish farmer instrumentalist composers uh, singers fishmonger (laughs) well it's kind of funny because i was like oh they kept talking about how this husband's so wealthy And like 5 million euros is a lot, but I was like, I wonder what he does. He's probably like a lawyer or something, a doctor. He's just a fish farmer. I love that. I love that for Herman. All that is to say, Herman mysteriously goes missing, much to everyone's dismay. What's quite curious is Herman, who had gone missing, suddenly reappears in front of a lawyer with his wife, Waltrud, to gain power of attorney over his assets essentially giving Walter control over all of his finances. And just as mysteriously as Herman reappears, he disappears yet again. Sounds fishy, right? No pun intended. So, how does Herman just keep reappearing and disappearing seemingly at Walter's will? Well, unfortunately for Herman, the most plausible answer is that, you know, Walter killed him and buried the body. The Herman... Oh quote-unquote, that the lawyer thought he spoke to was actually a man in disguise. So what happened was Walter hired a makeup artist so the accomplice appeared to resemble her husband, which I guess is one of the perks of being an opera singer. Like, you just randomly know a makeup artist who's willing to turn some complete stranger into the lookalike of your dead super-murdered husband who apparently decides not to ask any questions. Whatever. (laughs) Feels... Feels like a really way more difficult project. Feels hella sus. But here's the real kicker. So apparently Valtra had to hold a bit of an audition, for lack of a better word, because she actually had to go and ask eight different men to play the role of her dead husband. Yeah. Honestly kind of funny. So she's just going around town, asking all of these men, hey. I like to imagine it though as like An audition room where everyone's sitting there and they're like leaning over and they're like, what did you do to prepare? What other roles have you done? Yeah. Just sitting there comparing resumes to play the role of dead husband. It feels like, you remember the movie um, Anastasia, where they're like all auditioning for the role of Anastasia? Like, that's what this is. Like, that's what I'm envisioning at least. So she's asking all these people, which, like, you would think now you have, like, eight witnesses who are all, like, kind of onto your plan, which is just really stupid. And one of these men um, actually reported to the police and said, and I quote, She showed me a photo of this old geezer and said there would be a good drink in it for me if I played him at the lawyer's office, but I didn't want to get involved. Good on you, sir. (laughs) Good on you. Good idea. So I just have to pause and say that I love, I love that quote because I love the fact that this lady is trying to cover up the murder of her husband and also like committing full fraud and trying to trick a lawyer and she's getting 5 million euros out of it if she's successful and yet the only amount that she's willing to pay this guy is like a drink? I don't know. Seems kind of cheap. Can you help me commit like a felony but also here's some beer? As it feels very um, pay-to-sing. Uh, <laughs> pay-to-sing. Auditioning for pay-to-sing is what I'm getting. Feels very pay-to-sing yes. scholarship. That's the vibe. So, naturally, the opera singer was arrested and accused of murder and fraud. So, they never found the accomplice. They never found, you know, the actor that that won the role. But the police spokesman said... We have to go on the assumption that Herman is dead and that she is responsible for it. In the weeks after she went to the lawyers, she made many conflicting statements to us. She thought she had committed the perfect crime, never thinking that anyone would ask questions about why a missing man would turn up to sign legal papers and then go missing again. Which I just love. Anything, anytime the police are talking about her, they just absolutely roast her alive. It's so funny. Please go read an article about this. Um, (laughs) The policeman is so sassy. So the police report that actually the only reason that they were kind of tipped on the case was because of all of the rumors, like the well-known fact about her love of money. And that's what triggered... The thought that, you know, maybe she's behind all this. Maybe she's guilty. If she had actually just switched up the order in which she wanted to commit the crime, she actually, and even police admit to this, probably would have gotten away with it. But honestly, the whole thing was kind of stupid. So, in the end, though she has never made a confession, Voltraud was coined the Soprano Slayer by local media. That's wild. Yeah. It's very unclear... As to whether or not Herman was ever found. They they say with like great confidence that they know she did it. I it's just never been released. Wait, was she but was she convicted of murder? Um, she was definitely charged. What's weird is if you Google her, nothing comes up. Like she honestly just vanishes into thin air. It's wild. I mean, they probably have her in custody. She probably went to jail. But Soprano Slayo guys murdering for that big cash money yeah no that's a terrible plan though she should have just it's <laughs> just like i don't know like i don't know <laughs> it's one of those things too where like if you watch enough true crime you're at the point where you're like beginner's mistake <laughs> what a rookie what a first <laughs> murder kind of move yeah <laughs> like yeah Listen, if I had done it. (laughs) Let me tell you how she should have done it. (laughs) But isn't that always the way we talk about it? I know. It's absolutely awful. It really is. It's atrocious. And it's just, I don't know. Soprano Slayer, though. Wild. I just, I still can't imagine just, like, walking around being like, will you play my dead husband? Yeah. Will you impersonate my husband? And sign legal papers? And visit a lawyer with me? And then I'll, like, get you a bottle of, (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) whatever, your drink of choice. Like, that's it. So high stakes. What, what, what drink does the person who decides to play someone's dead husband get? I honestly have no clue. I don't know. Well whiskey. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, like, I have no clue. I literally don't know anything about alcohol. All right. The time has come for me to circle back to my met story um and what is probably the most famous crime committed at the met wait wait, the most famous are there other famous crimes committed at the met like murder i'm i do not know i could not tell you which is why i said this is probably the most famous (laughs) Uh. on july 23rd 1980 30 year old violinist helen hagness Mintinks got up from her seat in the pit of the Metropolitan Opera House as the curtains closed on the first act of Dostoevsky's The Idiot, which is a ballet. She left her violin on her chair, and that violin was later returned to her husband that night after she failed to reappear for the remainder of the performance. Okay. It wasn't until 12 hours later that her body was discovered on the third floor of the historic opera house, shoved inside a ventilation shaft. (gasps) She was naked. Her hands were bound behind her back, and her feet were bound together by rope and by rags. Oh! Her shoes were found on the roof, and forendics showed that she was alive when she was thrown from the sixth-floor roof <gasps> uh, down three stories to where her body was found. The fall fractured her skull, ribs, arms, and legs. There was no sign of sexual assault. People are dropping at the um, Met! Truly. What? That is so spooky. Well, it's also, like, when I read the description of it, I was, I was very surprised that I hadn't heard about it before. Because, like, she was a performer she was a violinist it like in the med orchestra and like it seems it seems like something that would belong on like a television show like on bones or yeah something. where's the it doesn't seem like something that would have actually where's happened. the criminal minds version of this story right and it very much captivated the media at the time like it was called the phantom of the opera killing oh man because there is no creativity among <laughs> nope not at all. <laughs> they were like, uh, opera house, death, <laughs> <laughs> phantom. Truly, um, the opera is always haunted by Phantom of the Opera. Thank you, Andrew Lloyd Webber. You know, some like in media intern was like, I know what to call it. Yeah. And that unfortunately has definitely stuck. Like half the articles I read were like Phantom of the Opera killing. Phantom of the Opera killing. So let's talk a little bit more about our victim. Helen Hagnis Mintix was a violinist from Aldergrove, British Columbia. When she was young, she used to go 76 miles round trip for her music lessons. Whoa. Right? She lived kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, So she had to, I think, go all the way to, like, Victoria. Um, By the time she was a teenager, though, she had already soloed with Seattle Symphony, and she was accepted into Juilliard, where she completed her bachelor's and her master's degree. Okay. Um, And then she went on to continue her studies in Italy and Switzerland, but she eventually moved back to New York to study with Nathan Milstein. Her friends and colleagues described her as someone who never knew a stranger. She's very thoughtful, very hard worker. She would bake cookies for, like, the corner newsstand guy on his birthday. Um, and she would bring baked goods and stuff to the orchestra. Aww. And a very devoted wife to her husband of four years. Aww. Who was waiting outside of the opera house for her on the night she got murdered. Aww. No, thank you. So this crazy insane crime happens. It's not until the next morning at 830 that they find the body, and obviously everyone immediately goes into panic mode. Well, yeah. Because it's clear that this happened during the show, like, because she disappeared at intermission. Like, it becomes obvious that she had been murdered during the show, but also it became clear that whoever knew, like, whoever killed her, worked at the Met. Right. Because the only way to get up there is kind of just this really dark labyrinth to get up to the roof. Okay, maybe it is a little so phantom. So realistically, it could only be someone who knew. Yeah, know. <laughs> we're really losing this to the phantom thing. But it had to be somebody who worked there, which then becomes a huge issue because they were like, w- it's this person have a vendetta against op- the Opera House. Are they going to kill more people? Like they didn't know what the motive was. Um, like I said, she was naked, but she hadn't been sexually assaulted. They didn't know if they were going to target women. There are kids in the show at the Met. So like they have a ton of security is hired and brought in for them to keep doing shows, and as far as I know, they didn't stop doing shows, which is a little... That's so The Met. Ugh. The Met only cancels that's, that's the so show the, met. If the person dies on stage. <laughs> Truly. Well, t- I mean, someone just didn't come back for the second half of the show and they didn't do anything. Yeah, that's odd. They start interviewing all 800 people who currently work in The Met <gasps> at the time, including Valerie Panoff, who was a ballet dancer because the show that was going on that day was called the idiot it is a ballet with the Berlin ballet whom Helen had said she was going to have an artistic discussion with when she left her chair. Wow. That's like so fancy, which was the only clue they had to go on, which is also strange because I don't know any time I've ever heard of an instrumentalist going to talk to like a dancer to have an artistic discussion. That's interesting. Yeah. A little sus, but actually they don't get a major break in the case until they find a ballerina who thinks that she had seen Helen. And she agrees to be hypnotized in order to aid her mem- memory. Okay. So they get this ballerina, they hypnotize her. And from her, they find out that she recalled seeing Helen get in an elevator with a plainly dressed white man with dark hair. Uh, and they make a, s- a sketch from her description. So about a month after they had found Helen's body, they start to focus in on... Craig Crimmins, a 21-year-old stagehand at the Met. So young. I can't believe that hypnosis is so important to this case. Because not only <laughs> do they use it to find Craig Crimmins, it is actually, it like, it's ruled admissible in court. They do use it in court against him. Wow. Which makes sense. Like, hypnosis in general is actually used with memory problems. Sure. So it's it's not that surprising, but it feels wrong. It feels a little, <laughs> little woo-woo. Feels a little sketch. Yeah. Um, well, when I get to the evidence against him, you'll see why it may not have mattered. <laughs> they didn't need to rely on that. So Crimmins would later make a full and detailed confession to the police. Okay, there we go. One that his lawyers would later attempt to have thrown out under the guise that it had been coerced. That was basically the basis of his defense. Okay. So from from him, we get the story of what happened that night. And I'm going to just read it from his confession. Spooky. It is, and I'm going to make some comments about the way he phrases things. So, said he said that Helen was heading back to her seat. She got in the elevator with a supposedly drunk Crimmins, who then tried to make a pass at her. So in his statement, he says, I said something to her, and she hit me. She smacked me on the right side of my face on the ear, and she said something snotty and loud. I don't think you get to say that about the person you murdered. No, you do not. The audacity, If you make a pass Craig... at somebody, if you- Right- I was like, even now, he's just- There's so much entitlement in the way that that's stated. She said something snotty and loud. Well, you were drunk and you hit on her. Yeah, she's entitled to that frickin' Craig. He then said that he forced the violinist, who was afraid of him, off the elevator and down the stairs to an underground stairwell. I sort of talked her into fooling around. Uh, I said it wouldn't hurt, but she started freaking out on me. You did not sort of talk her into- fooling around no she's freaking out then you did you attempted to to rape someone and she tried to make a decision on how she could best save her own life yeah you did not do anything okay she tried to hit me and i grabbed her hands and that's when i took out a hammer i just held it and told her to walk up the stairs when she saw the hammer she started taking off her clothes and she took them all off crimen said he unsuccessfully attempted to rape her and then he told her to get dressed and go upstairs Grimmins said in the confession, Miss Hagnus tried to escape by tugging at the door that led to the opera house. I grabbed her and gave her a shove and said, keep walking upstairs. He then said he tied the violinist and began to walk away. I told her I would leave her and tell someone she was there. I walked away thinking I heard a rattling sound. She had freed the rope around her feet and was running across the roof. He caught her and tied her again and using the rags he found in a nearby bucket. At that point, I picked her up in my arms and carried her to the ledge (gasps) near the air shaft. Um, She was talking to me, trying to be nice. He said he then gagged her and took a knife from her belt and slashed off her clothes. I figured if she got loose, she wouldn't run because she might be embarrassed. I heard her pouncing up and down, and that's when it happened. I went back and I kicked her off from where she fell 60 feet down uh, the air shaft. Oh my god. The jurors rejected the defense that the Manhattan detectives had pressured Mr. Crimmins into falsely admitting he was guilty of the crime. He was sentenced 20 years to life, making him eligible for parole in 2001. As of right now, he is still in prison. He's applied parole for parole many times, but it is of note that in 2001, the parole board stated, releasing you to the community would make a mockery of the criminal justice system. Yeah. Yeah. No, no doubt. I saw I saw an article that tried to phrase it as like, he's been a model prisoner, and I was like, he brutally murdered someone, so I don't really care what he's done in prison. I never understand that. I never understand how, I just don't, I not I don't get how that works. Yeah, this was not This was not even a crime of passion. This happens over the course of what must have been, like, an hour. Yeah. Well, how about he tried to rape her and then, like, <clears throat> kind of freaking... Uh, yeah, so I don't understand how somebody can, like, brutally murder somebody and then they exhibit good behavior. And they're like, let him out. Like, uh, 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 uh what yeah well and it's also of note like he's never claimed again that his confession was coerced okay because it probably wasn't like that was the whole basis of his defense originally huh. but he's never since in like parole hearings claimed that he was coerced like he's fully admitted he murdered someone nope bye craig goodbye sir and i don't i like i just don't get the like oh well i was thinking about leaving her on the roof but then she you know she was jumping around yeah she was fucking tied up yeah she doesn't know that you're going to actually tell somebody. She was trying to survive. There's so many parts of his confession that are insulting. Yeah. I sort of talked her into fooling around. Pisses me off more than anything I've read in a long time. Awful. Spooky in the worst way. And that's the other reason I hate things like the Phantom of the Opera. Like, it, it's such a, like, mystic little name thing. It's not. He's a rapist and a murderer. Yep. He's not smart. He's not mysterious. He's a terrible person. (laughs) And an idiot. Yep. Facts. Yeah, what a wild, what a wild time. When did this happen? This was somewhat recent. This was 1980. Okay. July 23rd, 1980. That's. And that's, that's the other thing. It's like, this is just not that long ago. Yeah, not at all. Like, if Helen Hagnus-Mintix were alive today, she'd be 70. Yeah, well, I mean, poor little Boncho fell in 88. The 80s were not a good time for the Met. The 80s were not a good time. Holy moly, that's super spooky. That's gonna be a no for me. I think that surpasses the aliens. Wild. Absolutely wild. <sighs> Stay away from high places at the Met. Yeah, don't. maybe don't get a balcony seat. This is, how the, this is how the Met convinces people to buy. <laughs> orchestra seating. Orchestra seats. You know. The worst. <laughs> and I, we're making some jokes here, but I don't want anyone to think that we're trying to make light of these tragedies. There is some humor to be found in dark places, but as far as it goes for, like, the people who were victims of tragic crimes, nothing but sympathy. Yeah. I hope their spirits moved on and they're not still at the Met. <laughs> <laughs> haunted <sighs> the met has never given me creepy vibes that's the other thing i don't get haunted vibes from the met but i might next time i go into it the next time yeah. <laughs> more reasons to get rid of the met <laughs> yeah i First. really need to know this pr team who's just kind of covering all this up it's uh, uh, you know the met has covered up a number of things over the years and they've always done an impressive job is all i can say that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So. Well, thank you for joining us on this year's spooky Halloween episode. We hope you enjoyed our stories. We'll have some more spooky stories for you next year. Feel free to jump into our Discord. Send us your other spooky stories. Maybe we'll put them into next year's episode. If anybody finds that roll list, please tell me. You can always come and chat with us, though. We're happy to talk about it. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Opera Offstage. You can get to our Discord through our Instagram bio, and you can also reach us through our website, opera-offstage.com. Stay away from high places at the Met. Don't get into the the Opera to Cult Pipeline. We will see you next week. Bye! (laughs) Bye!